All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 152 of Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Uh, Jason Lingren is with me, and Wayne McCroy is back, having done just probably years of research on the topic at hand. When we set out to do this, uh, we weren't sure whether we were going to be able to run an hour one. Uh, the censorship on this topic has been off the charts lately. And as you'll hear as we get into the episode, we go down a ridiculous road and then just ditch it and decide, look, we're going to say what we're going to say here. Um, This is about inoculations, but everything that we present in this episode is from peer-reviewed scientific sources, from the manufacturers themselves, from the CDC, and from other published and accepted sources. So to censor an episode like this is basically to censor peer-reviewed science. Um, Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and Wayne McCroy and knock out inoculations. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 152. Jason Lindgren is with me, and Wayne McCroy is back. Um, Quite a bit of research went into this episode. Now, I should warn everybody, we were going to do an episode on vaccines, um, but since we're all riding on a ship called the USS Sensor, we decided we're going to do a complete episode about pointed sticks. And if you pay attention, you'll find out that I'm not even kidding. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good evening. Due to circumstances beyond our control, censorship, YouTube, (laughs) (laughs) carry on. Let it go. Why poke the bear? The bear's going to poke back. Um, Anyhow, what do we have for the intro, Jason? We just guested on the program Rogue Ways with a lovely girl named Lindsay. Yeah, she's cool. I've done her show before. Um, She's really great to do shows with. So it's a website. Is it a channel or a website, Jason? It's both. Yes. Okay. So it's called Rogue Ways. Um, and of course, when it comes out, we'll probably post it around. Can you think of anything else? Actually, it already has been posted and it's all over our Facebook pages and all that. Oh, okay. Well, I'm behind the curve. I should have put that out on uh, maybe one of you guys can <laughs> kick it to me and I'll put it out on Twitter. I saw that movie. It was terrible. <laughs> anything else for the intro? No, I think we're good to go. Let's rock it with Wayne. All right, let's get Wayne in here. Hey, Wayne, welcome back. Good to be back, guys. So it's kind of stunning to consider the amount of information that's available to anyone on pointed sticks, isn't it? Yeah, there's a ton out there. I mean, anybody who wants to do a little bit of research about it, you could easily find scientific studies, you name it, the works that will tell you everything you need to know about pointed sticks. That's right. And just so everyone's aware, in hour two in the free speech zone where we get off the ship called Sensor, we will not be talking about pointed sticks anymore if you follow. Anyhow, uh, why don't you take it, Jason? Where are we jumping in here? So, Wayne, let's start with something that's really obvious. How many pointed sticks early in the 20th century did people have to collect compared to how many pointed sticks they have to collect today? Jason, it was far, far less pointed sticks back in the early 20th century, back in the beginning, the beginning time when, you know, people first started using these pointed sticks. It was a lot less, like significantly less. And now, uh, you know, the the amount of pointed sticks out there that uh, is recommended by certain agencies, uh, you know, certain pointed stick agencies, uh, it's a lot more than what it was then. Now it's like a ridiculous number. Right. He actually sent me um, the, the back on this, and I think it was 1986 was, was the information you provided. In 1986, um, it was less than 10 pointed sticks for any young person. And by the time we got up to, I think it was 2017, there were well over 20, probably way more than 20. I just don't have the information in front of me at the moment. Now, Wayne, there's something I'd like to clarify right in the beginning here, and I don't know the actual answer to this. Maybe you do. Were pointed sticks made differently? Were they grown differently on their respective logs early on in the pointed stick history than the way pointed sticks are made today? And pointed sticks aren't necessarily a problem from a scientific point of view. It's all the other things that go into pointed sticks that might actually be the issue. Compare and contrast for me, please. Right. Well, they've had some issues with pointed sticks from the get-go, but uh, it's definitely escalated. The the number of certain ingredients or substances that uh, find their way into the pointed sticks now. You you know what? I I can't do this. 
I can't freaking do this. I'm not doing this, and I don't give a damn. Um, we're not talking about pointed sticks here. Um, let's try that again. Why don't you re-ask the question and, and call it what it is? We're talking about vaccines. I'm just not. I'm not going down this road, man. So, from vaccinations coming into the mainstream, were they made differently? Is the science behind the concept of vaccinations different than what they use today? For instance, would they actually indeed? be valid if they were made in a safe way? Is there validity to the science of vaccination? Or is the whole thing poppycock right from the get-go, as far as you know? Well, I think there is a a little bit of merit to some of the uh, vaccine science. Uh, The way that they were uh, originally made, it was modeled after a homeopathic uh, type of a concept. That's, That's how they first came up with the idea for it. Now, that in and of itself, they, they had some problems early on because I think one of the first things they did was a cowpox vaccine, if I remember correctly. And they had a lot of casualties and stuff from that, people having bad reactions to it. So from the very get-go, they, they had some problems with it. But uh, there, there is some science to, you know, back up that they do have some merit. They do offer you some level of uh, resistance to uh, certain antigens. Let's put up some armor real quick here, guys. Every single thing we're going to talk about um, with regard to vaccines is verifiable and has been peer-reviewed or taken from peer-reviewed sources, which I guess leads me to a question here. Um, how, how much of, of the vaccines that are around today, Wayne, have been tested with placebos or in double-blind studies, these types of things? See, that's, that's, the, that's the whole catch. Uh, they claim that they use a placebo, but... What they don't tell you is that the placebo they use in these studies is usually another vaccine instead of uh, what they would normally use would be like saline as, as your placebo, like any, any tiny bit of a, like a drug, like a drug trial or something like that. They would use like a saline solution. Instead, they use another vaccine, another vaccine that's already been quote unquote proven safe. They use that as the, the placebo. Oh, I see. Okay. So I'm starting to catch on slowly here. So basically it's a bit of insider baseball, um, which doesn't make much sense because it seems like these studies would be a lot cheaper if you just use saline solution or something like that. Do you, I mean, is there something I'm missing here that's not quite so obvious about why they do it this way? No, you're really not missing the point. That That's the whole point. Why okay. do they do it that way? It would be cheaper to use just a saline solution rather than use, uh, like say a different, uh, vaccine as a placebo it totally doesn't make any sense like why they would do that that's not like a true control group then well no matter what they say they're actually rolling the dice twice then not once in reality right it's like comparing you know apples to apples what what would be one of the do you you know what one of the vaccines would be used in the control that's considered safe it depends on what vaccine they're testing so like say they're testing a new mmr vaccine well they would use the old mmr vaccine as the the control Oh, man. As the placebo. That's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. That's so, what they so, do. But, so, but, wait, but wait a minute. So that's a little bit like saying, so in, in the supposed placebo group, this many people had trouble. And in the new group, this many people had trouble. Is that the idea? Right. And there's no variance in the number of people that had trouble. So there you go. So it doesn't show it. And that's how it works. I, I mean, I'm telling you guys, I've spent literally thousands of hours tearing apart vaccine studies. This, this stuff drives me nuts that they get away with this and they call it science. You know, let's start off this conversation really the right way, unless you have an objection, Wayne. Why don't you let the audience know, and I'm sure a lot of them already do know because you've gotten pretty well known already, but why are you so freaking passionate about this? Because there's a damned good reason that you are. Yes, there is. It's very personal for me. I watched my son nearly die from a vaccine reaction, and since then he's developed autism. So you can't tell me. I, I will not hear you if you try to tell me with a straight face vaccines do not contribute to autism or cause autism in some way, shape, or form, because I've seen it personally in front of my eyes. Now, the sheeple out there would be like, well, how do you know that's what caused it? What if he didn't have these problems already? He didn't. I could, I could testify to you. He was a perfectly happy, on-target baby until he got this shot, and then several hours later, he was unresponsive, and we took him to the emergency room. And he was turning blue and gray, and he nearly died in front of my eyes. And by the time we left, we, you know, we, somebody saw us at the emergency room. He had come to and was looking a lot better. And he was running a fever and stuff, and they said, oh, that's normal. And 
and that right. kind of thing and sent us on our way, you know, treating us like we were first time parents that didn't know what in the world we were doing. But he was our second child. So, you know, we've been through the mill with kids. We know what's going on. What what was that last vaccine, Wayne? Last night, uh, Jason and I did a live show, which I know you know about because you were in the in the live chat. Um, the person last night who also had a child damaged um, from vaccines, excited that it was the MMR, was the last one uh, before everything went to hell in a handbasket. Do you recall what the last vaccine uh, your child took before all the trouble started? Yeah, it was called a DTaP vaccine. This one's your diphtheria, tetanus, uh, pertussis that vaccine, it's a multivalent vaccine, which means it's got multiple antigens in it. And uh, a lot of these multivalent vaccines, they use a, a high amount of uh, different adjuvants and preservatives in for storage reasons. Explain what an adjuvant is. I, I know what it means, but in case anyone does not. An adjuvant is an ingredient that they put in the vaccine and its purpose is to incite a uh, more hardy immune response to the antigen that's in the vaccine. So it's put there to kind of supercharge your immune system to attack the antigen. Now, there's there's a similarity that I'll bring up before I hand it back to Jason uh, with what we've seen with the 5G networks. Um, and the 5G networks was legislated all over hell and gone um, that nobody could sue the telecoms, even if there were adverse health effects from what they were up to. Uh, a similar thing has happened here, has it not? Yeah, actually, uh, this this has been going on for a long time now. People started to sue uh, these uh, vaccine manufacturers because their kids and whoever was taking the shots and stuff was having severe side effects and different problems, reactions to these vaccines. So this this actually spurred to action a 1986 law that actually gave immunity to the vaccine manufacturers for, for any damages because it was affecting the vaccine industry in such a profound way, like all these uh, outstanding court cases and stuff like that and legal expenses that they were going to go under unless something was done for them. So uh, that's so when the strong arm of the law stepped in and made a law exempting them from all liability. Well, it's a bit ironic that for once the law was actually working. So I, if I can deduce what you've imparted to me here, sounds like a lot of people were winning in court. Oh, yeah. I mean, even still today that goes on. Now they have a special vaccine court that you go to. Uh, oh, that I'm serious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I've heard of that, too. All right. So we just had a complete breakdown uh, over the course of 20 minutes. This has been happening um, ever since about the time Facebook crashed. Uh, we cannot hold a conversation on any of the tools we use, which I'm going to quit naming in public, by the way. We've had box crashes. We've had disconnects. We've had any number of things that are interfering with us trying to get this uh, episode recorded. But Jason, get us back on track. Let's see if we can keep pushing here. So the last subject we were discussing was the concept of vaccine courts. So Wayne, go ahead and take that away. All right. Well, uh, in 1986, the Congress passed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986. And what this did is it created a no-fault compensation program to stabilize a vaccine market adversely affected by an increase in vaccine-related tort litigation and to facilitate compensation to claimants who found pursuing legitimate vaccine-injured or sorry, vaccine-inflicted injuries too costly and difficult. The act provides that a party alleging that a vaccine-related injury uh, may file a petition for compensation in the Court of Federal Claims naming the Health and Human Services Secretary as the respondent. And that court uh, is set up to resolve these issues supposedly as quickly as possible, but I could tell you from having heard stories from people who've been there, they, they don't handle it quickly. It usually drags on for years. Is it, and, so, uh, so, so basically it's like, it's like these days when you call for customer service, it's such a royal pain in the you know what, um, that most people won't even pick up the phone and go down that road. But are you aware of anyone using that new court system uh, and, and getting anywhere? Uh, well, yeah, the, the uh, court system has actually paid out over $3 billion to date uh, for legitimate vaccine injuries. The only problem is you could hardly find a lawyer that'll even touch it with a 10-foot pole to go to the vaccine court. There are a very few of them that, that handle vaccine injury cases because it's such a convoluted court system. Is that also because it's hard to win? Well, yeah, it's it's one of those things where, you know, it's difficult to prove your case. You have to jump through hoops, and most people just lose patience after a while because they drag the whole process out so long. Well, that also makes, you know, would make a lawyer not want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. They don't want to take on a case that's going to last 10 years. 
Right, precisely. And the the thing is that this uh, gives the uh, the manufacturers of vaccines immunity to liability for these claims. So how this actually winds up getting paid is they they put a seventy five cent tax on every vaccine that's given. So this gets paid by the taxpayers and the people paying through their health insurance. So this right. comes out of taxpayer dollars to pay these people. So your your vaccine manufacturers have no liability and do not have you know do not lose money in this whole thing at all. Well, I guess I have to ask a common sense question here, and you know it relates to the five G episodes and other things we've done where similar legislation has been put in place to make massive agencies, corporations, and established whatever you want to call them immune. If a law is put on the books, which can be clearly shown to be adverse to the well-being of the population at large, is that a legal law, I guess I would ask? And I don't expect you to answer that, but I'm sure there's a lot of people out there thinking this. Well, yeah, that's actually another clause that's actually in this law. I forget the exact wording. I could look it up in a second, but it says something to the effect of... uh, Oh, here it is. Most importantly, the act eliminates manufacturer liability for a vaccine's unavoidable adverse effects. So it basically it admits that there's going to be unavoidable effects and it waves them from all liability. It's, a, it's just go, go ahead, Jason. So this ties in, of course, with another point you have on here, that vaccine injuries are far more common than reported. Where are vaccine injuries reported in the first place? And we'll just break that whole concept down for us. Okay, basically, uh, vaccine injuries are reported through what's called VAERS, V-A-E-R-S, and it's the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. Uh, and basically, uh, the, most people don't even aren't even aware that this, this exists, first of all, but uh, it, it's supposed to be uh, given out as information with, you know, your vaccines, but it, it generally is not. So the CDC estimates that only somewhere between 1% and 10% of vaccine adverse events are even reported. So what kind of numbers are we realistically looking at here? Well, I guess let's do the United States, but if you have further numbers for the rest of the world, that would be good to hear too, especially in third world nations. Yeah, that I really don't have the numbers for that, like as far as being the entire world, but uh, you're talking, it, it goes up into the millions or even the tens of millions of vaccine injuries, just based on what the CDC is offering for its numbers. Oh, well, wait a minute. So if we're talking about the CDC, we're talking about the United States, and it's into the tens of millions? Yeah, that's if they're uh, 1% of all vaccine injuries are even reported. If, if that You use their own statistics. If that's correct, if only 1% of all re- uh, vaccine injuries are even reported, then based on the number of vaccine injuries that are reported, that would put it into the millions, like literally into the millions. So do, do we have numbers on, on how many inoculations a child is supposed to get these days? If a baby was born tomorrow, do we have any idea how many inoculations are scheduled for that child by the time he's uh, reached the age of consent? The 1986 law permits them the right to not disclose known risks to parents or guardians of those being vaccinated. Resting on the learned intermediary doctrine, manufacturers bear no liability for giving or failing to give accurate or complete information to those vaccinated and have only to provide relevant information to doctors who must give patients CDC vaccine information statements. And that's uh, part of the 1986 law. So you sent another thing, and I'm scrambling to get through in light of everything that we've just gone through, where it shows literally how many vaccinations were scheduled for a child in 1986 compared to 2017. Do you have that in front of you? Because I'm still scrambling through here and I'm not finding it. Yeah, I have it. I'm a little more here it organized. Is. I, I just found okay. it. So in 1986, this is what the CDC put forth as the childhood immunization schedule. And again, this is not arguable information. This is posted by the CDC. There's the DTP polio, another DTP another polio, another DTP, MMR, another DTP, polio, another DTP, polio, and then tetanus. So the sum total of that schedule from 1986 is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. The other side of this There's information... There's 56 on the other side. I counted them for you. I got so, there, so as of 2017... The CDC has scheduled a child to receive, what did you say, 56? 56. 56 immunizations. 
56 immunizations. By what age are we talking about here? That's up well, to 18 years. Yeah, that's. I'm, I'm looking at the side. So it starts during pregnancy. The first two on this list happen during pregnancy. Then one day, one month, two months, four months, six months, 12 months, 15 months, 18 months, two years, three years, four years, five years, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, 11 years. 12 years, then it jumps to 13, then 14 years, 15 years, 16 years, 17 years, and then 18 years. And by the way, in each of those individual years, there are multiple scheduled immunizations. So let's talk about what's actually in these vaccines. All 56 of them that you're going to be getting by the time you're 18. Oh, there's all kinds of bad stuff in these vaccines. Uh, just a partial list. Before you answer, Wayne, is that a, are you about to lay down all peer-reviewed information, legitimate science? Everything we've talked about so far and everything we're going to talk about, it's all peer-reviewed science. Uh, this is all, you could find this stuff in scientific journals, peer-reviewed journals, peer-reviewed articles. This is all stuff that uh, is pretty well accepted. This is from places with high reputations among the science crowd. So so if anyone takes umbrage with this episode, they're basically taking umbrage with true science. But anyhow, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Uh, let's just look at a, just a couple different vaccines here. Here's the flu zone vaccine. Okay, this is an influenza vaccine. It contains egg protein, octophenol, ethyloxalate, Triton X100, sodium phosphate buffered isotonic sodium chloride solution, formaldehyde, sucrose. Uh, let's go down the list a little bit more. Okay, here's influenza flu mist quadrivalent vaccine. Now, this quadrivalent one, this is what's called a multivalent vaccine. These ones usually have a lot more bad ingredients in them. This one has monosodium glutinate, hydrolyzed hydrolyzed porcine gelatin. Do you know what porcine gelatin is? That would be from a pig, wouldn't it? Yes, that's exactly what it is. So wait a minute. Anyone who's from Islam would be violating their religious traditions to take anything with pork in it, wouldn't they? Yes, they would. So would Judaism, correct? Maybe so. Yeah. Anyhow, go ahead, Wayne. Okay, we left off with porcine gelatin, arginine, sucrose, uh, dibasic potassium phosphate, monobasic potassium phosphate, ovalbumin, gentamicin sulfate, and I can't even pronounce this one. EDTA is the abbreviation for it. It's some kind of a, an acid. Uh, let's find another one here. That Okay, let's do a common one people would be more familiar with, the MMR vaccine. The MMR vaccine contains chick embryo cell culture, WI38 human diploid lung fibroblasts. And Crow, do you know what those are? So it sounds to me like it is tissue taken from probably a cadaver of a human being. From aborted fetuses, yes from aborted fetuses okay yep vitamin it says vitamins just a, a generic <laughs> vitamins that it doesn't even tell you what kind of vitamins are in it uh amino acids that's another generic term too so they could be putting anything in this and not telling you fetal bovine serum so there's your baby cow blood right there uh which another interesting crossover for that is uh, did you know that fetal bovine serum is used as a force enhancer in biological weapons Oh, man. Oh, boy. Yeah, so, I mean, this 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 stuff is all in these vaccines, guys. I want to ask a couple Sorry. more. And some of the vaccines that seem to do with flu, uh, we find polysorbate 80, correct? Yes, that's in a lot of the vaccines now, too. What does polysorbate 80 do? Now, this is what's called a phospholipid. And basically what this does is it helps to open up the blood-brain barrier to make it more receptive to... Uh, whatever other stuff they're putting in the vaccines, like, say, aluminum. And that gets to be a major problem. There's another listing here called octoxanol, which doesn't sound good on the face of it, but octoxanol 10. Do you know what that is? I'm not familiar with what octoxanol 10 is, but it doesn't sound good, does it? Sounds kind of sure toxic, look it doesn't up. it? Anyhow, I, go I ahead. I, I pulled so. you off. Sodium chloride is the last I see on the list here. We were on sucrose, uh, glutamate. Recombinant human albumin. So basically, this is modified genes. Isn't albumin have to do with an egg? Yeah. It's like the white part of an egg, isn't it? And that's from a human? Yeah, this, yep, human albumin. That's in the MMR vaccine. Uh, where did we leave off here? 
Uh, neomycin, that's, that's an antibiotic, and you know antibiotics can be harmful. Uh, they, they use them a lot for illnesses and stuff like that for bacterial infections, but they can be harmful because they kill good bacteria and stuff in your body too. Okay, sorbitol, hydrolyzed gelatin, sodium phosphate, and sodium chloride, and that's a partial list of ingredients that they put in the MMR vaccine. By the way, Rose just looked up the oxytoxinol. They are used as detergents, emulsifiers, wetting agents, and defoaming agents. And by the way, anybody who's vegetarian also should not be taking these shots if indeed they're trying to stay a vegetarian or, of course, vegan. That's precisely right. So see, people uh, from all kinds of different walks of life should have just moral reasons to walk away from these, and they should be allowed to do so if they would like. Or they could just go look at all the peer-reviewed research we did and come to their own conclusion, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's all out there to be had. Okay, here's one. How about smallpox vaccine? African green monkey kidney vero cells. Oh, my God. <laughs> Human serum albumin, sodium chloride, neomycin, polymyxin B. That's another antibiotic. And they probably load this th these things with antibiotics for reasons of, uh, you know, because they're using monkey tissue. So Lord only knows what else is going in there with that. Glycerin and phenol. How about polio? Want to do the polio one? Because this one's pretty loaded with stuff, too. Well, that was big back in the day. If I'm not mistaken, that's Jonas Salk, right? Wasn't Jonas Salk known for the polio vaccine? That's from, right. Yes, from the Salk Institute in San Diego. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Well, this is slightly different now, but... Uh, than what it was back then. And we'll, we'll talk about polio a little bit more, the polio vaccine, a little bit more when we're done listing this, these ingredients here in this one. This one contains Eagle MEM modified medium. What that is, I'm not sure. Calf bovine serum. M199 without calf bovine serum. Vero cells, a continuous line of monkey kidney cells. Phenoxethanol, formaldehyde. There's formaldehyde again. Uh, neomycin, streptomycin, polymyxin B. So the polio one contains three different antibiotics in it, which is interesting. Now, uh, back in the day, the polio vaccine, it was discovered early on by uh, Merck Pharmaceutical Company that it was contaminated with a, a virus called SV40. And what this is, is it's simian virus 40. It's a, a strain of virus that uh, contaminated it from, uh, from monkey cells that they put in it. And uh, it was figured out and known, and it's been known for a long time now, that this uh, SV40 causes cancer. Somewhere in all these notes, there was a quote from Jonas Salk himself in front of Congress or something, wasn't there? Am I wrong here? Am I remembering correctly? Yeah, he testified before Congress that uh, since, I forget which year it was, but every single case of polio in the United States was caused by the polio vaccine. So... So uh, there's that. So I, I guess I have to, while we're finishing up ingredients here, uh, one of the things people used to claim a lot was that there was mercury and what's what's the more modern name I'm looking for, Jason? Thimerosal. Thimerosal. Which is a mercury-based preservative. So is there mercury in these things in the peer-reviewed research? Is there thimerosal in these things? Yes, some of the vaccines, especially the flu vaccines and pneumonia vaccines, things of that nature, still have thimerosal in them. Thimerosal, what this is, is it's a preservative, and it's a form of ethyl mercury. And there are actually studies out there that show that it is even more bioreceptive than, than methyl mercury, which is the mercury people are most common with. That's like your mercury in seafood and stuff like that, that they tell you don't eat seafood because it has mercury and it'll harm you. But it's okay to inject this mercury, this ethyl mercury into your, into your body and, and let it do its thing. So yeah, let's combine that with the uh, polysorbate 80 and open up your blood brain barrier and let that mercury go right in, right? Right. And I think the biggest problem with vaccines right now is actually the aluminum adjuvant that they put in them. Do tell, if I'm not mistaken, uh, science and peer-reviewed science is stating right now that one of the leading causes of Alzheimer's is due to a buildup of aluminum in the brain tissue. Is that correct? That's what my understanding is. And uh, there's actually a list of 11 recent, like these are really recent studies that have shown that aluminum in vaccines could be extremely harmful. Oh, wait a second. Barium aluminum salts in chemtrails? Sorry, I'm just being a crazy conspiracy theorist here. 
No, aluminum's everywhere, man. I think we've covered this in a previous show somewhere. It's in everything. It's in your underarm deodorant. You name it. Uh, we're, we're bombarded with it. There's aluminum nanoparticles everywhere, but they're especially prevalent as these adjuvants in these vaccines. So, Wayne, is there a reason to continue on through ingredients? Should we just agree here that everyone listening who has an interest should go look up the ingredients, or is there more we should cover before we move on? No, I think I think we could probably move on from there. I think it's pretty self-explanatory at this point that vaccines contain a lot of things that people might not be comfortable putting in their bodies. So they should go ahead and go look. And like I said, most of this stuff is either from the actual vaccine package inserts themselves or it's through peer-reviewed journals. So the flu shot that everywhere you go, you see massive advertisements for trying to get you to take. I even get texts from the health insurance that I'm subscribed to constantly asking me, about getting flu shots. And you see that in every drugstore you go to. I see it in a lot of the grocery stores. It's just really pushed very, very hard. So this flu shot that they're really trying to get you to take, Wayne, what is it about these flu shots? Let's talk about those. Okay, well, there's a lot of different brands of flu shots, Jason, and it depends. Each Every place you go is going to have a different brand of the flu shot. Now, most of them, they're all manufactured to fight off the same strains of flu. But the thing is, they do have slightly different ingredients depending on which one you get. And some of them contain some pretty troubling things. Like, here, I'll read you the ingredients. This is a flu shot called Fluad. Okay, F-L-U-A-D. That's the brand name of this. That one contains squalene. Are you guys familiar with squalene at all? I'm not. Okay, what squalene is, is this is a substance that your body naturally produces. They use this as an adjuvant in some of these vaccines. And this substance has been linked to Gulf War Syndrome. Are you familiar with Gulf War Syndrome, Crow? I'm very familiar. And when I was in the military, um, I will tell anyone, uh, I got so many. As a matter of fact, I became an expert at figuring out how not to get inoculated. But I lost. I got so many inoculations in the military that I couldn't even give you a roundabout figure. And as I was separating from the military, I was in Okinawa and they were going to do some flu pig swine three series shot that they were announcing had never been tested by the FDA um, and you could take it or you didn't have to. And I said, I'm getting out of the Marine Corps. I'm not taking it. They threatened to court martial me. I never took it. Um, but I, people should be aware. Um, I, I'm talking probably 40, 40 inoculations, but anyhow, I'm sorry, Wayne, back to you. Yeah. Well, anyway, squalene has been associated with Gulf War syndrome because I guess this was one of the common adjuvants that they put in some of the vaccines uh, like during the Gulf War because it, it helped to preserve them better in the hot weather over there in the desert. So that's why they used that supposedly. But uh, yeah, it's been linked to Gulf War syndrome. OK, let's list some other ingredients that are in this Fluad vaccine. Polysorbate 80. There's that again. Uh, sorbitin trioleate. Sodium citrate dehydrate. Citric acid monohydrate, neomycin. There's your uh, antibiotic. Yeah, yeah, antibiotic, yeah. Canamycin. There, there's another antibiotic. Barium. You heard that right. Barium. So they, 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 share, uh, they share an ingredient with chemtrails? Yeah, they share multiple ingredients with chemtrails. Mm. Not only that, barium barium's known to be uh, <laughs> hazardous. So what's that doing in there? Good egg question. proteins. Let's go on. Egg proteins. And I can't even pronounce this. Uh, I'll try it, though. Cetyl trimethylammonium bromide. And that's bromide is something that they've been using in bread and stuff like that lately. What it is, is it's, it's actually it's a preservative. It helps it to last longer. And formaldehyde. Once again, there's formaldehyde. What is actually the ingredient? in these supposed inoculations that is supposed to ward off the flu. Does anyone know that? Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, it's supposedly like a reduced strain of the actual virus itself is in there. But, is, it, uh, this, is it listed in the ingredients or? No, that's the strange thing because I, I have this form in front of me and this lists off all these ingredients and stuff that are in this. I guess it's contained in the proteins is where they usually put it. But it doesn't of, list what's in there. Of all the inoculations I got in the military, I think the platoon I was in when we were up in combat training was probably close to, I don't know, between 60 and 70 or 80 people, I forget. And we'd all, you know, they used to put, they would line us up 
and you'd pull down your pants so both butt cheeks were exposed. You'd roll up both arms, and they had, like, these little guns, and you'd get, like, four or five at once. They'd file you through. But when we were, I remember this because when we were up in combat training, there were certain portions that you couldn't miss or you wouldn't graduate. And we went for the, the flu shot and two people out of, I don't know, somewhere between 60 and 80 people got so sick after the flu shot, they couldn't complete that portion of training. And I recall that. So two out of roughly 60 to 80 people. And that's firsthand experience that I witnessed. Now, here's the other bit of reality we need to discuss about flu shots. These things obviously have to be manufactured ahead of time in very large quantities, correct, Wayne? I would say so, yeah. So they try and predict uh, like a year ahead of schedule what's going what's to be the, the strain of flu that hits the following year. And how many strains of flu could there possibly exist in the wide, wide world for them to be able to predict which one is going to hit a year from then? <laughs> I, I'm going to stir the pot a little little more quickly here. Here, take my ladle. Yeah, Dr. Franco Lina, our previous guest, who we will have another episode with pretty quick, is actually doing research on what a virus actually is. And I'm, we're going to ask him back for that. But sorry, I figured I'd interject it in case anyone's interested. That sounds fascinating to me. I'll be looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, um, as, as will I. And it's it's like crazy. I already know a little bit about it. Okay. Going back to your question, Crow, about uh, do they actually put like what it is that they're trying to immunize you from in these things, the viruses? Well, here's something a little bit more disturbing, and this is Fluorix Tetra. Okay, that's the name of this vaccine. It's another flu vaccine. And this contains what's called A. California 7-2009-like virus. All these things say like virus. So they're taking specific strains of virus, but they're putting a virus that's like it in there. <laughs> so you, you get what I'm saying? They're, they're putting yeah. it as a suffix on the end of it. A Hong Kong 4801 slash 2014 H3N2 like virus. B Fuket 3073 2013-like virus, and a B Brisbane 60-2008-like virus. So they're, they're, they're putting viruses that are like totally unidentifiable as being actual viruses in there. They're putting something that they're saying is similar in there to these viruses. So that's interesting in and of itself. And is the idea that it should trigger the same immunoresponse? That's what they claim, but uh, I mean, I, I could tell you vaccinations, they do not produce the same response that they would to the actual virus itself. Well, this is what I want to know, since we are sticking to actual science, what's accepted by mainstream as science, what is the validity of what we're talking about here? Are these freaking things working, as they claim? I, I guess what he's asking is there peer-reviewed studies that show that inoculations prevent getting sick, getting the flu. No, that's not the case, though. I mean, they'll tell you uh, that you can't get the flu from the flu shot. But I'm telling you, out in the just the regular public, out of like every 10 people I talk to, somebody says, yeah, I got the flu shot, and then I got the flu right afterwards. It's like, but the, you know, they, they tell you in the literature, oh, you can't. Or if you tell the doctor, they'll say, no, you didn't get the flu. It can't be the flu. It's just another virus. Okay, it's another virus. You want to call it something different? It's the flu. <laughs> That's, so like, are, that's what they do. They, they play the name game with these different diseases and stuff, too, like the polio vaccine. You get the polio vaccine, you get Guillain-Barre syndrome. Do you know what Guillain-Barre syndrome is? I have no idea. I do. It's just like polio. Yeah. <laughs> it messes you up big time, can cause paralysis and spasms and all sorts of crazy stuff with your muscles. Are there that's places? a listed adverse reaction in a lot of different vaccines, too. Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's a pretty common adverse reaction. So say someone listening to this episode wanted to go look up a peer-reviewed study that shows that the flu vaccine prevents flu. Is that a possible thing to do? Well, they could go look up the study, but if they don't know what they're looking at, they're just going to, like, I'll tell you what most doctors do if they have a question about this. They'll go, they'll look up the study, they'll read what's in the beginning that's called the abstract that talks about what it is they're testing, and then they'll scroll down to the bottom to the conclusion and read the conclusion, which tells you what conclusion they came to. And usually it'll read something like this. Abstract will be like, we're searching to see what kind of effectiveness this uh, vaccine had against this certain flu strain, and uh, here's the results we had, and it'll list off a bunch of numbers up there of what they're, they're testing for. And then down in the conclusion section, if you jump down to the conclusion section, it'll, it'll list off 
like the numbers, and it'll tell you we found X amount of, of uh, different uh, antibody teeters that the body produced against this. And that's how they measure how these things are working. What they do is they just look for, is your body garnering an immune response to what they're injecting in you? <laughs> and if they, if they could see your body's producing the antibodies, they say, there's your immune response. It's fighting this disease, and it's offering you some protection from it. So he, here's what always gets me. So recently I had to have a surgery, and I saw one of the breakdowns of all the little things they used. For like a tongue depressor, it was like 40 bucks. And for one of the bandages that was required, it was over 100 bucks. Uh, and yet I can go to my local Rite Aid and get a vaccine, which had to be made by a pharmaceutical company. And not only will they give it away free, the store itself will give you vouchers uh, worth money, like 30% off or points that you collect that can be worth up to like 50 bucks. And that's what's always just blown me away. Anything we get that's medical is always expensive, except for these inoculations. It just doesn't make sense to me. All right. You want to blow some common myths about vaccines out of the water right now? If we can do it in hour one and still hopefully deliver this to a lot of people who might be interested, yes. We can, because this is scientific fact. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, this is undisputable. I mean, this is mainstream. You could look this up. It's, it's indisputable. So if people have a problem with this, then they have a problem with peer-reviewed science. So vaccines. Okay, what's the inference when you get a vaccine? The inference is you will have lifelong resistance to uh, this disease that you're vaccinating for, correct? Yeah, I guess. Um, that, that is the general gist of things. That's the assumption, right? Right. Well, your average vaccine only lasts from, from somewhere to four to ten years, and some of them as little as two years. So any resistance conferred by this vaccine only lasts for four to ten years, and some of them as little as two years. That's well, why they give you booster shots. I, I guess I should have been able to figure that out from the list we were looking at, um, because I noticed that in the earliest years, one, two, three, and four years old, uh, there were multiples back to back to back of the same or similar inoculation or a series that relates to each other, inoculation with a series of three or four inoculations. Right. And that, that's the thing. These vaccines, they don't last. They don't confer lifelong resistance to you. Now, if you actually get, say you get the measles, you actually come down with the measles and get the measles. Then you have lifelong resistance against the measles. You won't ever get it again. That used to be a thing years ago. They would have measles parties with the kids. Right. Polio is the same way, right? If, 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 you, if you get polio inoculation, you'll never get polio, right? That's, that's supposed to be the party line, isn't it? That's, that's the inference that they give you, but that's not true because it wears off. The resistance to it wears off. And another thing we could look at is most of the reductions, the major reductions in these like devastating diseases like polio, they came before the vaccines were even introduced. And a lot of this has to do with hygiene and hygiene facilities, running water, things like that. A lot of these diseases dropped off dramatically because of those reasons. And then on the tail end, they brought these vaccines in and claimed it was a miracle in modern medicine. And lo and behold, people bought it hook, line and sinker and they got up. Now, not to say vaccines don't confer some degree of protection to you, because there is some truth to that. Like if you get, say you get the, the measles vaccine, you could still get the measles and you probably still will, but you'll have uh, reduced symptoms of it. Like you won't even notice, or you could have it without even having symptoms and pass it on to somebody else. And people don't realize that. Well, in some of the peer-reviewed research that you sent along to me, uh, it pointed out, I think what you're getting at here, that by 1940, most of the infectious type diseases had already fallen before even the onset of the use of vaccines in any meaningful way. Right. That's exactly the point I'm getting to. Well, I can tell you what the big thing is that stopped it, getting the sewage out of the streets. Precisely. It's all about hygiene and running water, things like that. Well, not Simple only that, things. at some point we, we did get antibiotics, and while they can be dangerous, I mean, I don't think many people are going to argue if you've got a terrible infection, pretty sure antibiotics is going to make it better, regardless of what the side effects may be. Right. That's correct, too. So there's not to say there's not some validity to it or some, some say, good, good use for these things, but it's just that they've become absolutely, like, so loaded down with all these extra weird ingredients that are really not were not originally intended to be put in there, that now it's just, it's a freak show. It's a horror show. These things are a horror show in a vial. 
Well, when when you understand that in 86, there were 10 or 11 scheduled vaccines and we're now up to whatever it was, 56, that's insane. It's like everything else in this world. Nothing ever finds a place where it works and levels it off. Uh, in this capitalist-driven corporate world, things are constantly just pushed further and further. I mean, what, are we going to wake up in 20 years and, and get a inoculation schedule that's 156 inoculations before someone's 18? So, Wayne, let's try this. We're up to 56 inoculations by the time a child is 18. Is that because diseases are so much more rampant in the 21st century that they need all of these things? And where are we going from here? How many is it going to be in five years? How many is it going to be in 10 years? Do we have any idea about this from the actual scientific papers? Okay, well, here's the thing. There there hasn't really been, like, say, an increase in these dramatic diseases to necessitate this uh, this big increase in the, the amount of dosages of, of these different vaccines and stuff that we get. What I can tell you for sure is there has never, ever, ever been a study done on the entire vaccine schedule's cumulative effects on people. So no one knows for sure if you take all 56 of these vaccines, what kind of an effect it's going to have on your body. And second of all, another thing I could tell you that's a, a vaccine fact is no vaccine has ever been tested for carcinogenic or mutagenic potential, or for its effects on fertility. Holy smokes. You're Break that down. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Explain that for people who, who those are too big of words for. Uh, basically, a carcinogen is something that is, uh, you know, a cancer-causing or poisonous agent. Uh, they've never been tested for that. Mutagenic potential, they've never been tested to see if they could alter your DNA, which actually a lot of evidence has shown that they do just based upon how viruses work and stuff of that nature. And uh, its effects on fertility. They don't test for any of that. Well, alrighty then. Crow, you want to tie up hour one with that bit of fun? All right. So that brings us to the top of the hour for hour one of episode 152. As you can tell by the pathetic opening of this episode and how we've basically had to bite our tongue and our lip all the way through to convey valid information to people. I will first close by saying everything you've been presented with here is peer-reviewed science. All of it. None of this is opinion or anything else. All of it is peer-reviewed. When we get into hour two, we're going to cover all the things you wish we could have covered in hour one. But that's not really our fault, is it? If we want to provide valid information at this point, we run a gauntlet of all these mega corporations out there who, for some reason, don't want people to express information freely. It goes on and on and on. But Jason, anything you want to add before I bring hour one to a close and we prep up to lay down some unbelievable information about vaccinations in hour two? I would rather get hit with a pointed stick than take a vaccination. Yeah, I'm already imagining, you know, what's the what's the episode image going to be here? A pointed stick equals a hypodermic needle. It's going to have to be something like that. Um, but anyhow, that does bring hour one of episode 152 to a close. We hope to see you all over at crow777radio.com, where free speech rules. Uh, there is an endless litany of things that we pulled out of our list of topics to cover that have to be pushed to hour two because it has been cited that anyone who wants to talk about vaccine vaccinations or flat earth or any number of things in this world is now being actively shadow banned or having their channels closed, strikes issued, videos removed. It goes on and on and on. So I will ask in the closing of episode 152, will all you people with an interest in what we're talking about stand up for a channel when it comes under fire or will you watch it go down and sink without a word. Anyhow, hope to see you all over at crow777radio.com in the free speech zone where we're going to lay down some mind-boggling facts, all peer-reviewed. So there it is, man. Cheers.